joining us. We appreciate your visit here today if you're new. Um, I just want to echo what my brother said earlier. We do have a nursing room upstairs for moms who are nursing, as well as downstairs we have a toddler room. But if you want to be here with your toddler, you ain't bothering me. You might be bothering the person beside you, but that's all good. I can preach straight through a baby crying unless they do it for more than 10 seconds and y'all tripping, you need to go downstairs. <laughs> bring them downstairs, calm them down, and then you can bring them back up. But we want our families to be together as much as possible. And so that's, we do family worship. It's, we don't dismiss kids out of our worship time. We want them with us. Uh, and so the dismissal is so that um, at their level, they can understand some of the things that we talk about here. And so that's why we do that. And so um, thank you for your patience as well with the space issue that we're having. Um, we're praying through that and asking the Lord to provide for us uh, in the midst of that. So we appreciate your visit here uh, with Christ Alone Fellowship. So as we're doing, we're going to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25-37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25-37, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we're, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and look, we're here in chapter 10. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would realize the work that your word does. And I pray that your word would again take root in someone's heart, that they would not sin against you. And we pray that your word would bring life. And pray that your word, Lord God, would stir obedience in, in, in our hearts, that it would stir affections for you, where we worship you privately, where we deny the things of the world publicly. So, Lord, help us 
Help us to know what your word has to say to us today. May your spirit convict, bring conviction and ministry into our soul. I pray, Lord, that my eyes would not be on the people before me, but to you. And I pray that the people before me will have their eyes to you and their ears to you, that they will long to worship you in the listening of your word. God, keep us from being entertainment-based. But we want ears to be tickled. We want an itch to be scratched. Lord, help us to worship you in the listening and in the preaching of your word. We desire so much, Lord, to glorify you. It's this time right now, Lord, we pray that you are glorified and that your people will be edified and that the lost will come to saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord. So, saints, what is pure and undefiled religion before God? What is pure and undefiled religion before God? I think there's a real dilemma where one could be, as we often talk about here, well acquainted with Scripture, but be far from God. Even an expert theologian can be far from God. I've seen many people in my years who acknowledge and accept biblical theology, but deny the biblical mandate to go and do what our faith is supposed to compel us to do. Now, G.K. Chesterton said this, I may not practice what I preach, but God forbid that I preach what I practice. Get that? I may not practice what I preach, but God forbid that I preach what I practice. It's real easy to tell someone what the Bible says. But let's talk about what you're doing with what the Bible says. Let's preach a sermon on that. And I guarantee you that most of our sermons, and God willing it will be this one, that we would be careful in giving out instruction and not keeping in mind of the mirror before us that's showing us our need of instruction as well. So doctrine is not meant for you to be a Pharisee to go around and police people's morality. Doctrine is supposed to produce personal holiness and a humility where you're going to serve those who are falling short who need to remember what the gospel is. Can I get an amen on that, somebody? Amen. Well, I'll take that amen. Sadly, what people practice may be so disconnected from what they say that they believe that something as simple as meeting the needs of others is not just ignored, but I think also there's a lack of conviction. Our actual practice is indicative of who we are. It's not what you do on Sunday, but definitely what you do Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Are we genuinely expressing religious, God-honoring affections to the Lord? Do we display acts of worship where we go and do what God desires for us to do? Maybe some cannot express the true worship of God in their actions because they don't desire God at a heart level. I was just talking to a young man the other day, and he was telling me, I just don't have it in me. I don't want to come to church. 
I don't want to, I know it's the right thing to do, but I don't want to do them. Our text shows a lawyer who studied the law of God. He was well acquainted with the Mosaic scriptures, but needed to practice the scriptures. He was far from the one who showed him mercy. The mercy he was supposed to show others was lacking. So in our outline for today, point number one, the examination in verses 25 to 29. The examination, verses 25 to 29. And point number two, the explanation. Verses 30 to 35, the explanation. And then lastly, third point, the exhortation. Verses 36 to 37. So we have the examination, the explanation, and the exhortation. And point number one, the examination in verses 25 to 29, the author Luke begins with, Behold. Eight times in Luke's gospel does he tell Theophilus to behold. To behold means to pay attention, listen closely, be observant about what is about to be said here in our text. Luke wanted Theophilus to pay close attention to the lawyer who stood up, the scripture says. Now, a lawyer today is someone who is an expert of the law. But in Jesus' time, it is someone who is an expert in God's law. More specifically, it was someone trained in the law of Moses. The text tells us that the lawyer stood up, meaning that something caused the lawyer to stand up here. And what was the cause for the lawyer to stand up? The text tells us in the latter part of the verse. The lawyer stood up, it says, to put Jesus to the test. Right away I read that and was like, what a dummy. <laughs> he don't know what's coming, does he? To put Jesus to the test meant not just that the lawyer wanted to see if Jesus had answers to the questions he had, but it was also that the lawyer wanted to catch Jesus in a trap here. So the question was dishonest because it was not so that the lawyer could ascertain knowledge, but the intent was to trap him. The question used to trap Jesus was this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think there's some flattery here as well. Flattery is the insincere praise or words that seek to deceive the person receiving them. The lawyer addressed Jesus as teacher. You didn't call people teacher back then loosely. Calling someone a teacher or a rabbi was an acknowledgement that they were able to teach. Yet he's asking that to deceive. The lawyer gives Jesus the respect of acknowledging that he can teach, but the motive behind the acknowledgement was to deceive here. Not only was that deceitful, but the question itself was. The lawyer asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But the lawyer is asking to examine Jesus to see if his answer is correct. And the lawyer may have trapped Jesus. Uh, he wanted to trap Jesus somehow if he got the answer wrong. And so the lawyer asked how to acquire, how to obtain and possess eternal life. Good question. Who better to ask than the one, the holder of eternal life? The lawyer asking this question must have been a topic of discussion among his ranks. This means that many answers may have been given. And what Jesus does in our text is brilliant. But first, he answers the question with the question. Doesn't he do that often in the Gospels? Verse 26 of our text, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
So he responds with two questions here. What is written in the law is the first one. The lawyer rightly quoted two parts of the law in verse 27. Let's read it together. And he answered, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. Then the lawyer also quoted Leviticus 19.18. But notice that the lawyer didn't answer the second question. The second question was, how do you read it? Look at the text. He's not answering that. He just quoted scripture. He's not interpreting the passage. The lawyer wanted a specific answer but wasn't willing to give one himself. Nonetheless, the verses he quoted were correct. Jesus said to him in verse 28 of our text, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus affirmed the answer that the lawyer gave, but the second question wasn't answered. Loving the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our strength and with all our minds will bring life. Jesus is saying that is correct. Loving our neighbors as ourselves will bring life. That's what we're supposed to do. But I want to return to the second question that wasn't answered because it is essential. How should the lawyer have read the law about inheriting eternal life? Now, reading in those times usually was done out loud, which is what reading in Greek means. It's not like today how you read quietly with the coffee in the corner, you know what I mean? You know how you read very quietly? Some of y'all read like this. <laughs> I have to read like this now. Another, you know what I mean? My, eye, my eyesight's leaving me. But it would be unusual, right? If you go to Prince Street Cafe or anywhere else in Lancaster in the cafe and someone reads the Bible out loud, wouldn't that be awkward? Like if I said right now, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying teacher at the cafe. That would be, you know, but culturally speaking in Jesus's day, even in the first three centuries or so, reading out loud was normal. That was integrated in the way you actually read things and not just the Bible, but just any material you read them out loud. Jesus is asking here, according even to the Greek, how have you verbalized and internalized it? How have you spoken of it? How have you internalized the law? Did the lawyer mean what he was reading and saying that he knew? What was his conclusion? What was his takeaway? How did he apply the law? He quoted the scriptures and responded with suitable passages, but he avoided application. He didn't answer the second question. And the fact that he sought to trap Jesus shows us his condition before God. His condition was one of knowing scriptural information without heart transformation. This is the danger of knowing things about God and not knowing God. And sadly, our church is most in danger of it. I believe the preaching that me and Wayne have been doing and other brothers uh, Brandon and, and Tim, soon in the future, when we have brothers come in here, it's important that we exposit the text. When we get into our small groups, we're not telling y'all topics or we're not, being, we're not driven by that. 
We're opening up our Bibles to see what God has to say. We're most in danger of having right information about God and not knowing God at all. Listen, instead of answering this question, the lawyer asks another question that exposes what is underneath it all in verse 29 of our text. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's what's going on beneath. The lawyer, trying to trap Jesus, desired to justify himself. Now, what does it mean to justify oneself? Well, to render oneself as right. The lawyer is trying to trap Jesus to prove himself right. Most likely the point in trying to trap Jesus is to prove Jesus wrong so that the lawyer would look right. Which never actually could ever happen. Like you can't trap Jesus in the corner. You don't know who you're playing with. The lawyer is examining but for the wrong reasons. First, he's dishonest by trying to look like he's looking for answers but in avoiding the application, the question, the lawyer seeks to prove Jesus wrong so that he can make himself look right. The lawyer is dishonest because application was lacking. It's no different today, saints. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I got people saying, yo, what should I do, man? And then you tell them, and then they go and do the opposite of what you told them to do. Right? They come back and be like, Pastor Lowsman, I'm in the hole right now, man. I just, yeah. Brother, what you need to do is, you know, God's word says, you know. And then they go back and do the total opposite again. Pastor Lowes, I'm in a deeper hole. I'm like, bro, you're wasting my time, bro. <laughs> Apply the word. God has told you what to do. But you want to do what you want to do. So don't waste my time. I love you, but don't waste my time. If you're going to go out and destroy yourself, then by all means, go out. I'll be praying for you. I've told brothers that. You refuse constantly to apply what God's word says. And then some of them even blame the church for it. Well, because, Pastor, man, I spent time with you. What are you talking about? It's not like I have a lot of time here. Like, I've spent a lot of devoted time on brothers and sisters that refuse to apply and in wonder at the end of the day why uh, why are they where they are like they're stuck they, they right. and it's mind-boggling it's like they're, they're constantly and it's like yo you need deliverance you need god to get into your heart and change you this is exactly what this lawyer needed my bad for randy i'm a pastor that's what we do <laughs> the lawyer is examining but for the wrong reasons the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Which is a good question. This question has cultural overtones in it. Gentiles were not considered neighbors. They were not considered as those to be in fellowship with. Peter, when ministering to Cornelius, a Gentile, said in Acts 10.28 that it was unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And so the lawyer knew about this, and the question again was about entrapment, not ascertaining knowledge. The question was an attempt to trap him into a debate. And so because Jesus knew this, he gave an explanation, not just answers to the question of who is my neighbor, but Jesus is out to expose the hypocrisy and the prejudice of someone who was an expert theologian and yet someone far from the heart of God. Jesus explains this through the use of a parable. Our second point, the explanation in verse 30 
Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now remember, a parable was a story or a saying that illustrated truth using comparisons, hyperboles, or similes. And as Jesus begins to explain, he speaks of a man. However, he doesn't identify whether the man is a Jew or a Gentile. Be careful with the New Living Translation. It's, it's an eye translation. I use it at times for my studies. But the NLT describes him as a Jewish man. Actually, that's incorrect. The Greek doesn't tell us who he is. But he says that the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Some say that Jesus mentioned the travel from Jerusalem to Jericho because it was actually one of the most dangerous routes for travel. One of the church fathers, Jerome, said it was called the bloody way. It was known as dangerous because there will be robbers and thieves ready to rob and steal from you. And Jesus says that the man fell among robbers who stripped and beat him. A robber was a plunderer, someone who was ready to take your possessions. And he was beaten to the point of being left half dead, nearly dead or almost to the end of dying. And then in verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So what is a priest? It's someone who performs sacrificial rites. And why would Jesus use a priest in this parable? Well, in the Hebrew faith, the priest's primary responsibility was determining whether a sacrifice was appropriate. They determined whether the offering was acceptable and whether the attitude of the person giving the offering was appropriate. So the priest assessed not only the worshiper's sacrifice, but also their attitude. What did the priest do when seeing someone robbed and left half dead on the road to Jericho? He passed by on the other side. So the one in charge of examining sacrifices and the intent of others was the one who passed by a man who was half dead on the other side. This doesn't sound right to me. The one who examined others did not examine himself? That's weird to me. Remember Matthew 9 where the Pharisees asked the disciples why Jesus would be with tax collectors and sinners? Let's turn there, uh, turn there with me. Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. Matthew 9, 11 through 13. Matthew 9, 11 through 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. This is verse 13 of Matthew 9. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. A scribe asked a similar question in Mark 12, where Jesus told him of the two greatest commandments. The scribe concluded in Mark 12, uh, 33, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Here the priest saw the man half dead on the road and passed by the other side. The priest knew what the scripture said about a proper sacrifice and how to engage those who brought the gifts. But this priest lacked mercy. How is this possible? The one who goes into the temple to provide through the atoning work mercy to God's people. How is it possible that that's his job, that's his role, and he sees someone half dead and just walks on the other side? How is it possible to have right theology and practice and, and an office and to see someone half dead and walk the other side? Something's wrong. Just because you got the gospel right don't mean you're right. Straight up. Just because you got the gospel right don't mean you're right. We tell people, what is the gospel? Right? We question them and tell me what the gospel is. That's, it's important. And Yeah, you can have it. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, that Christ was buried. You know, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead because of what Adam did in the beginning. Adam sinned against the holy God, and therefore God had to then introduce uh, uh, redemption to his people by the one who would be bruised and born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, to die as a curse on the cross for us, and then to be buried, literally buried, and then to rise again from the dead bodily so that we who follow in his steps will also be raised. You can have all that, but it don't mean you're right. What are you doing with it? Would you be the one walking on the other side when there's someone definitely in need of help? Proper knowledge does not mean right standing with God. Actual knowledge means True and correct standing with God that must produce a go and do response. Actual knowledge is proper knowledge of God applied. Jesus exposed this issue that the lawyer had in our text. In verse 32 of our text, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, Levites were descendants, uh, Levi's descendants that were responsible for the upkeep and maintenance of the tabernacle or temple. The Levites offered from the priests in giving them lesser tasks than those who cared for the sacrificial part of the temple. And this is because the Levites prepared the temple while the priests dealt with the sacrifices. They took care of the temple where God would accept sacrifices for sins. So both the priests and the Levites passed by on the other side. They were neglecting to show mercy to someone in desperate need. Those well acquainted with God's law did not have God's heart. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He don't care what you bring to the altar. He's not into that. He's not into a very good worship team. He's not into good preaching. He's not into air conditioning, <laughs> comfortable seats, a good-looking church, a good-looking pastor. He's not into that. Praise God. 
It's not what you bring. It's why are you bringing what you're bringing? What's the quality of your heart? But man, if we look into our hearts, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? But man, that's a precursor for the grace of God. That qualifies you for the grace of God. If you know you're messed up, you're better than the person who doesn't know they're messed up. Amen. I come to church knowing I'm messed up. I come to church knowing one of y'all going to get on my nerves today. That's going to happen. But what do we do with what we know, with who we know? That's another conversation. We got to stop, we got to stop talking about God as a what here. It's who you know. Do you know him? Not do you know about him? Do you memorize the Bible? Like Satan got this thing. He knows more than you do. That don't change nobody. God desires mercy. That our hearts will break at a brother or sister in need. That it will compel us to do, to be a go and do believer. So what example does Jesus give in a parable about what the lawyer is supposed to do? Well, he goes into telling him about a Samaritan in verse 33. But a Samaritan. He talked about a priest. He talked about a Levite. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if you know anything about Samaritans, they claim to be descendants of the northern Israeli tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Then after the Assyrian destruction, if you remember in our studies of the northern kingdom in Israel, about 722 B.C., they were Israelites who had mixed with the Syrians. According to Ezra 4, the Persians allowed the Jews to return from captivity, and it was said that the residents of Samaria were rejected by the Jews when they asked for help to rebuild the temple. And so the Samaritans then believed that the sanctuary where worship of God took place was at the foot of Mount Gerizim, where they thought Abram took Isaac as a sacrifice. Then the Samaritans around 332 B.C. were overpowered by the Greeks, which caused them to reroute themselves to ancient Shechem, where they rebuilt a city that was then destroyed by the Jewish king John Harkinus about 107 B.C. So when he tried to build a city, this Jewish king went and destroyed it. Then around 9 AD, Josephus wrote about Samaritan men who came secretly to Jerusalem around midnight when it was customary to open the gates of the temple and be, they began to scatter human bones in the entrances throughout the temple to desecrate it. What do you think Jews and Samaritans felt about each other. There was beef, as we would say. There was hostility. There was historic hostility that was so significant that they thought each other unfit for fellowship. For the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim. For the Jews, it was Jerusalem. If you remember the woman at the well interaction in John 4, she says in John 4, 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, talking to Jesus, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They were different on worship as well. The difference were historical and current in the time of Jesus. But even with these issues, 
Jesus would use a Samaritan who was considered unclean and unfit for fellowship as the one who did what was right. As the Samaritan journeyed to where the man who had been robbed was, he didn't pass by him on the other side. Instead, he went to the, where the man was. The one who could not come to the temple where the Levites and the priests were did what was supposed to be right. He had compassion. Yet, the Samaritan is not allowed to go to where the Levites and the priests would pray. Considered unclean, unfit for fellowship. He showed compassion. It meant to be moved with pity, to, be, to feel a sense of sympathy for somebody, to have empathy for someone to the point of action. It's not enough just to feel bad for somebody. Oh, man, I don't know how you're going to pay your rent next week. Oh, man, you know, that means you're going to be homeless. I'll pray for you. That would be a whack church, by the way. I'm not going to that church. If there's a brother and sister in our congregation that's in need, man, we, we try to figure it out. We try to help each other out. I've heard stories of brothers and sisters in our church taking care of each other. That's what we're supposed to do. The one who could not come to the temple, Jesus uses him as an example. What would be the action from the Samaritan? In verse 34 of our text, it says, He went to him, to the man who was robbed, and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, in the time of Jesus to travel, these items were first aid kits for travel. The oil was used to soothe and heal, and the wine had alcohol in it to clean the wounds. Jesus said that the Samaritan poured oil and wine on the man. However, notice he wasn't concerned with preserving the oil and the wine. Instead, he ran it to the point where it flowed to make the man well. These items were not cheap in Jesus' day. But the Samaritan was more concerned for the man's well-being. And notice that the Samaritan did more than this. He set him on his own animal, it says. So the Samaritan did what the priest and the Levite were supposed to do. Now, do you know that the law required good treatment for neighbors and the enemy's animals. I noticed this, like, the priests and the Levites knew that animals were supposed to be treated well, even from a brother and an enemy. Deuteronomy 22.4 says, You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him lift them up again. Then Exodus 23, 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So the priests and the Levite weren't willing to do what they were even supposed to do for animals. The priest and the Levite refused to give a half-dead man treatment that the law commanded for an animal. Something's not right here. I think it just proves another point. Showing mercy can be great. Uh, it, it can be very inconvenient. Well, it, I got my schedule. Like, I don't know if, you know, uh, my week is full, you know, and the brother's hurting in his sin. 
We must remember that the Samaritan has somewhere to be, but he stopped everything to show mercy. Showing mercy can be very inconvenient for you. Even for our church schedule, showing mercy can interrupt us. But not showing compassion when needed reveals what, that we have not learned the simplicity of what the gospel is supposed to produce in us. The Samaritan could have left the man at the end, but then that wasn't enough for him. He took him to the end, verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Two days' wage he was willing to spend on someone he did not know. He gave two days' wage. Then the Samaritan told the innkeeper that he would be paid whatever else well, that, of what was needed to take care of the man. So the one in charge of inspecting sacrifices and the people offering them and the Levite who assisted in the care of the temple needed the heart that the law was supposed to produce. This lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. The lawyer desired to justify himself. He wanted to be proven right. So he did not have the heart that was supposed to produce mercy. Now Jesus is exposing the lawyer's need for a heart change here. If your heart has changed, do what God has called you to do. This is what Jesus exhorted the lawyer to do. And the last point, the exhortation in verses 36 to 37. The parable had three men, a priest who examined sacrifices, who was far from what the sacrifices was for. A Levite who took care of the temple and served faithfully the priests was far from helping those in need. But the Samaritan who was considered unclean and far from God was the one who was nearest to the heart of God. Jesus says it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Jesus answers the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And of course, it's the man who fell among robbers is my neighbor. Jesus answered in a way that revealed who wasn't a neighbor. The priest wasn't a neighbor. The Levite wasn't a neighbor. They weren't. They, they were so far from the heart of God. I wonder, were they even saved? Many in the visible church contrast religion with relationships. You ever hear that? Like some people say, well, you know, Christianity is about relationship, not religion. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not true. Your definition of religion is off. The right way to contrast the two is this way. True religion from false religion. False religion is what we saw in the parable. It is professing belief in God with no action or compassion. True religion is what James 1.27 says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We probably haven't thought about this, but... Having correct theology and not practicing or applying correct theology is another religion. Did you hear that? Say it again. 
we, we often talk about Islam and we talk about Mormonism, we talk about black Hebrew Israelites, and we, talk, we talk about all these other beliefs that are definitely false. But what's also a false religion is for you to come here every Sunday, hear the word of God and refuse to apply it. You're of another religion. You're in the same condition a person is in believing in Islam. Now, I'm not talking about when you get out these doors and then you have a whack week where you fell short because part of this religion, this true religion of the faith, is that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So part of this faith we have is that we have a savior to go to who will forgive us of the whack week we lived. That's part of it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a refusal to obey God's word, a refusal to take heed to God's word, where you go out and live opposite from what you're hearing today, as if you're not even Christian, that's another religion. There are people attending Sunday services who are of another religion, the religion of no action, the religion of no compassion, the religion of criticizing everybody in the church but themselves. I don't like those people. Stay away. Go away. Because if you're close to me and you see some stuff, you're going to criticize, no doubt. I criticize myself all the time. Dang, Losi shouldn't have said that. You made a joke of so-and-so and now their feelings are hurt. Like, you know what I mean? I'm just that way. I went to a conference the other day and me and Wes bunting, we always crack jokes on each other. I could do that with Wes. But there's other BFC brothers I don't know too well that I started cracking on. I was just like, I wonder if they got offended. They probably did. They don't know me, though, like Wes does. Wes can take it because he knows where my heart is. He knows I'm not out to, you know. And then you get people who criticize, people who criticize the church for being flawed. Yes, we're flawed. God is not asking you to live a perfect Christian life. He's asking you to be willing to obey. But there are people that come every Sunday and do nothing with the preaching, nothing with the worship, show nothing for it. Go out and club, go out and do the world. That's another religion. The Levite and the priests here are not applying what they've been doing daily in the temple. They're doing nothing with it. That's another religion. And if you're here today and you're of that religion, God can save you from it. Amen. He can change your heart. Religion is the expression of devotion to God. It is devotion and action. False religion can have expressions. There are false religions that do many good things in the world. Just because someone would have helped a robbed man doesn't mean it is enough before God. That's the other part of it. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, good things, but have not love, I gain nothing. So you can help the person who was robbed and pay for all his bills and all that, but if you're not doing it out of a fervent desire to worship and trust the Lord and to, serve and to worship him, you're doing it for no reason. 
Jesus is not saying that helping the man is enough by itself. He is telling the lawyer who knows the law of God that because he has what is true, you should be the one expressing that commitment to others. Jesus was showing the lawyer who thought Samaritans as outsiders that God's heart can be known by those who were considered outsiders. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Mercy means one who expresses kindness, concern, pity, and clemency. It was the one who expressed kindness, expressed concern, expressed pity, and clemency. It was the one who had correct theology and actually lived it out. Now, this is what the lawyer is exhorted to do in our text in closing. Go and do likewise. The Christian faith, the only true religion, is a go-and-do religion. And what makes it different from all others is the gospel. God himself is a go-and-do God. All other religions that claim a deity serve false gods made of wood, stone, and imagination. The Lord our God is the only true God who sent his only son, begotten son, into the world because we have fallen short of his glory. Then God made everything good, but man made everything fall. And everything in creation needed redemption because of sin. God put in place then the death of God the Son so that God the Holy Spirit would raise him from the dead so that then he would raise the people up, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead shall also quicken you. Then Jesus lives a sinless life, which none of us could do. Then he died on the cross so that his life could be a sacrifice for our sins. Then he was buried because he died, taking on the full wrath of God for us. But then Jesus was raised on the third day, fulfilling the greatest act of compassion to those who were undeserving. When I drive on the highway, sometimes I see a deer, sometimes I see an animal laid dead on the side of the street. That was us. We have been robbed and left for dead, but Christ came and took us to the end of salvation. He took care of every wound, didn't he? Caused by sin. Didn't he grant us eternal life? Didn't he take care of us? Didn't he cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Okay, so if that's the case and you're saying yes and, and amen to that, amen, I would say amen too. What are you doing with it? Is the world seeing that? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Visit orphans. Take care of the widows in their affliction. Then it says, Keep yourself unstained from the world. Fight against sin. Fight for the purity of your heart that God has given you in Christ. Live it out. The priest didn't live it out. The Levite didn't live it out. But the one who was considered unclean lived it out. Amen. The one who was considered unclean lived it out. Being clean is not a prerequisite 
but being unclean qualifies you to be used. We are all unclean before a holy God. We all fall short. You will fall short this week, but I beg you, don't be of the religion of no practice, of no prayer, no conviction. Go to God, and he will clean you. Father, I thank you. Would you help us? We pray. Be with us today, we ask, Lord. God, I pray that your people will be compelled to good works, that as we have been saved by the greatest work done on the cross, that it will compel good works out of your people. We are not saved by works. We thank you that it was only the finished work of Christ that saves us. But because we are saved, we should show forth works. So I pray for Christ Alone Fellowship not to be a dead church. God, that you would keep us from being of another religion, but to be of the Christian religion, of the Christian faith that is a go and do religion. Help us with the orphans. Help us with the widows to serve them. Help us with the man who's laying there half dead in need of the basic necessities. Help us not to walk by and be hypocrites. Help us to be a church that serves. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said.